So, okay, here we are, back at it. October the 27th, 2019, lecture discussion number 81 on the book of Joel. And uh, I have to say this really fast. Uh, today, we're going to be beginning today with a couple of vast Internet questions. I have been deluged with uh, Internet mail this month, and that's really fantastic. There's some wonderfully smart people. I got a fantastic uh, position from John in Pennsylvania, who's uh, extraordinary depth of thinking that he produces. He, he made a case for uh, the birth of Adam and the birth of Christ at Tabernacles versus Trumpets, which I thought was thoughtful and extremely interesting. And I've gotten many, many more uh, Sherry. We don't know where Sherry is anymore, but Sherry wrote. and uh, uh, People are leaping ahead with regard to the symbolism of the heart. And they are quickly figuring out how this heart works and what it means, not just what it's doing. That's extraordinary enough. The electrical and the, uh, and the don't call it mechanical, it's all electric, electrified, but what we can record versus what is unseen. So the seen and the unseen, if you will. This, the heart has tremendous symbolism to it. Just the exchange of oxygen. That's, whenever I'm talking about deoxygenated uh, blood and oxygenated blood, I'm talking about breath because oxygen is breath. When I'm talking about breath, I'm in the Genesis 2-7. Uh, so immediately you recognize that there's more here theologically than there is physically, which we would expect. He would put his story inside of us. We are the image of God after all. So those are wonderful letters, and I, I haven't got to all of you yet. I'm working down the list. Um, that I'm not doing them necessarily as uh, the order in which they come. But uh, I'm going to get to them at least as fast as I can, though this week I've got two windows to put in. By, by me, I mean Lori's got two windows to put in. Uh, she's good on ladders. It's not a big problem. She'll crawl outside, get on the roof, and tear a window out, and then, you know, it'll work out great. She loves this stuff. I, I'm now the encourager. Okay, so I might be on the roof. That will not go well again. It hasn't lately, and it probably won't again. But anyway, that's what's happening. We've got to beat the winter, so we have windows to go. And then we can calm down. So, where was that? We're going to begin with a couple of the vast Internet questions. One is from your tube, and the other is via the digital processes. And both are applicable to our current myriad of subjects, which are many, obviously myriad, and I should take this opportunity to interject that I rarely comment on comments that are entered into your tube or, or face space or any of those places. I know Cliff Sides in a lot of them. I hardly ever comment. I think I've commented once on, on uh, space face and that's it. Nothing else. I've not done any of the YouTube or sermon audio. I don't do that. I don't have time. Again, windows, winter, i got to do what i got to do. So all those responses that are identified as cliffside are supper Dave, if he exists. Yeah, there's nobody sitting in any of those chairs, as you can see. 
And, uh, and so he does all of those. He also does sermon audio. Sub, Sub D writes all the sermon uh, lecture introductions. So those of you who say that the sermon uh, lecture introductions are silly or goofy and you blame me for them, I am, of course, innocent. Unless that's an empty chair, in which case then I'm guilty. Uh, so uh, Sub Dave, uh, he, if he exists... It writes all of those. I have written not one of those. All are his responsibility. Therefore, address all civil litigation accordingly. Anyway, a question was entered in the comment section on a lecture that Subdave, if he exists, entitled, He Can Resurrect Himself, October the 11th, 2018. And he called me, or somebody pretending to be him called me and said, you might want to look at this and address it, and I agreed. It fits very well into the current subject. The question went something like this. Do you have the name of this gentleman? Was not a real name? Kind of like us? Okay. We think it's a gentleman. Then It could be anybody then, couldn't it? Why does the first verse, this is what I, I thought that it was a, a, a gentleman, so I'll continue with that thesis. Why does the first verse of the book of Revelation state that the signs of the book did not originate with Jesus, but with God who gave Jesus the revelation? That is the question. Now, the writer of the question, based on other information he provided, is interested in the reconciliation of the triune nature of God. That's what he wants to talk about, because he sees things that uh, that he finds at issue. And more specifically, he wishes to know if Revelation 1-1 indicates subordination, because that's the implication of his question, I think. And he gave me more, in, uh, as I said, more information, so I'm confident that I'm correct on this. In other words... He is thinking that Revelation 1.1 demonstrates unequality or inequality between God and Christ. And that is a common view of the church today. Now, it's horrifyingly wrong. It's blasphemy and it's heresy. But the church believes that today in a vast majority and teaches it constantly. And you know that there is no unequality. Jesus Christ is never not God. It's impossible for him to be not God. Infinity, he is infinite. Infinity cannot be removed by definition. Those who have the position that he divested himself of his infinity, well, that is a ridiculous premise, especially inside of time. There isn't enough time to divest infinity. Infinity, by definition cannot be removed. And God and Christ are intrinsic. There is a sameness. And the, and the Bible is unceasing in demonstrating that. And I hope to do some of that again today. But these are very important questions. And it's a wonderful question. And I have no reason to... I'm not, I'm not trying to say that his position is uh, unexpected. It's absolutely expected based on what the church does today. The church has failed completely with respect to the deity of Christ. Not completely, but overwhelmingly. Hardly a sermon from any of the largest churches in this country goes by without implying that Christ is unequal to God when he, in, in fact, is exactly God, absolute God. So, again, there are very important questions, and they should be expected. And they're easily the most common types that I receive, and I've addressed them, my goodness, thousand times. 
So this just fits. And as you, you're the analogs, you know all too well that I, I talk about it continually. But for the digital people, if they're people, and they may not be people, I, you know, they could be a computer-generated question to annoy us, to annoy you, because ultimately they plant the question and I make you deal with it. So could be a plot. But the digitals, they, they might just venture by a, a, a face tube thing and listen to a single lecture and then they flee in terror and they never return. That's the common experience. And this gentleman related that he had been the recipient of hostility from previous churches and pastors every time he asked these kinds of questions. And I believe that's absolutely true. When he questioned the deity of Christ, he got hostility in return. He didn't get answers. He was, he said he was thrown out. Uh, I would absolutely expect that. And I can attest that this is the uh, unfortunate typical response given. The contemporary seeker-sensitive church has no, well, that's not right, it has very little understanding of the absolute Godhood of Jesus Christ, and they never say it. They hardly even say Christ. You will find churches in this city, some of the largest churches in this city, you will go to them and they will say God constantly. They will never say Jesus Christ. If I stood up and said Jesus Christ, they'd all faint. They'd twitch first and then fall over. They just won't say his name. And now that's a big problem. If you're a church that won't say the name of Christ, you are a failed church. And you are in huge trouble. Do not stand next to those pastors at the throne. You won't have to worry about it. But as you know, these the church today, the contemporary church today, very little understanding. Christ is on the outside knocking. Remember that in the church of the end of the age. See Revelation 3, 114, or 3, 14 through 22. Christ is not inside here. By They don't know him. They have a caricature of him. They have a diminished view of him. And they love it because they can make it financially uh, viable. People want to see Christ as, as something much less than what he is. There's very good reasons for that. I don't have time to address them today. So anyway, naturally, these churches are not going to tolerate uh, what they uh, interpret as difficult questions or challenging questions. They're just simply not. They will usher you out the back door, especially if you have any aggressiveness to you at all and you're loud in any way. They don't want it to spread to the rest. I was talking to Catherine earlier today. Uh, uh, I've had many people give my lectures on CDs or tape recordings in those days, cassettes. That's how old I am. Uh, they would give cassettes to other pastors in town uh, of my lectures. How popular do you think that made me? You know, that was not good news for me. I, I became a pariah much faster than I anticipated. But these issues are complex, but they're not difficult. That might not make sense at first glance. What I mean by that is the answers require searching assembling. But Christ made it definitive. He clearly told us who he truly is. And he did so over and over and over and over again in language that is plain and as obvious as it can be. So let's see what this is about. Revelation 1. 
Obviously, Revelation 1 is in the book of jo- uh, is going to get us back to the book of Joel, and this is a Joel lecture after all, so yay me. Here is Revelation 1. This is the issue that uh, got a person thrown out of church, if in fact that occurred, and I think that it likely did. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now, I added verse 2, but let's repeat verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, there's a lot of pronouns in there, and you've got to work your way through them. Many Issues. So I'm going to pick out seven primary issues to resolve in Revelation 1.1. First would be the many meaning of Revelation. What does Revelation mean here? Why is it called the book of Revelation? The revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that phrase indicate as it applies to Christ? Number two, or B, the Hebrew name for God being referenced. There's, it says God. What is the Hebrew name? What do I mean by that? Well, that requires that it's it's necessary to retrace the Greek back to Hebrew because the New Testament was written in Greek. So I, in order to understand what Old Testament name for God I've got, I need to find out what New Testament word is used that's been translated to God in my Bible. Does that make sense? Say, say yes, it does. Yes, yeah, do, do neck exercises. Number three, what does God gave him mean? Who is the him in the statement? What does gave... When God gives something, what are we talking about here? What's the meaning of gave in this sentence? How long is shortly? That's my favorite word in it, of course, because that's a quantum physics concern. And some Bibles will say quickly. And that's a time reference. And that's a time reference from the one who conceived and installed time and is, and is himself seeing all time from a frame of reference that is outside of time. Whenever he makes a time reference, we have to pay attention to it. Who is the he and the him and the his and all of this? Who is the he of he sent and signified? Who is the his of his angel? Who's the angel of the angel? I could keep going, but we need to stop right here. And by we, I mean me. Obviously, Revelation 1-1 is filled to the brim with information. And if he brought 1-1 to most churches in this city, then he blew them up, or any city for that matter. And I could see immediately why he was escorted out vigorously. They They would assign him as a troublemaker, when in fact I think the opposite is true. Obviously, Revelation 1-1 is complicated now, so let's see what we can do. Keep in mind that today is only going to be a shallow, investigative endeavor. There's volumes of theological opinion here. Uh, I've seen it and uh, read a great deal of it. But most of it is written on the Greek-Hebrew congruency. So there's a Greek word, and then there's a Hebrew word, and they try to make, make the attachment from the Greek to the Hebrew. 
So, like I said, there's a wealth of opinion. And it goes on throughout the entire New Testament, so it's not just confined to Revelation 1.1. Hebrew, Greek congruency is not exactly a, a seeker-sensitive sermon title. I doubt that uh, Supper Dave, if the chair is empty, will use that as a title. And that would attract absolutely no one. Which is why I immediately knew we had to include it today. And again, Revelation 1.1 is Joel, and this is Joel 81. So anything in Revelation, it will get you to Joel, and the inverse of the reciprocal is true. Joel will get you to Revelation. So whenever you're studying Revelation in any form, and this is the blessed prophecy, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads the book of Revelation and who understands the words of it. That is a blessed person. By blessed, that is a wise person. You want wisdom, Daniel, and Revelation. They are connected only the wise understand those books. As there are many people who think they understand it, but they really don't, and you have to discern your way through the junk. <coughs> okay, Revelation. The Revelation is an Old Testament reference. It's referring to something in the Old Testament. So when you see Revelation, look at my fancy red pen. When you see Revelation, you go someplace in the Old Testament. Who wants to take a shot at this? I think none of you want to, so I will do it for you. You go to the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony, which is more accurate. Because a revelation here means unveiling. means to unveil. Jesus Christ is going to unveil. The Ark of the Testimony was hidden, it was unseen, it was veiled. So up to Revelation 1.1, Jesus Christ primarily has been veiled, and now is the unveiling of him. And if you study the Ark of the Testimony, you know there was a veil uh, that was placed over it, it was taken down, the Holy of Holies brought this up a week or so ago, it was taken down from the Holy of Holies and placed over the top of the ark so you cannot see the ark. That is a picture of Jesus Christ. He is that ark in type in the sense that the ark is the type of him or the symbol for him. He has the law. He keeps the law. He's perfect. He's sinless. The Ten Commandments uh, written by his finger are inside the ark of the testimony. All of these things uh, that it's covered in gold, it is wood covered in gold, that is humanity covered by deity, his deity in authority over his humanity, his perfect humanity. So the, if you study the Ark of the Testimony and the veil, then you will know that it is a picture of Christ. And so you'll understand when the, when the Ark was unveiled, that relates to Revelation 1.1. And the greatest unveiling of the Ark happened where and when? Do you know, do you know, do you know? Because he did it. Christ did it himself. It was unveiled at the crucifixion. He split the veil in half, right? And so now the, anyone could see into the Holy of Holies, not just the high priest, but anyone could see the ark unveiled. So the, the unveiling at the crucifixion is something that Christ did personally and directly. He accomplished it as he gave... As he gave up his life. 
because he has to give up his life. He says why in John 10, 17 through 18 and John 2, 19, 22. He gives up his life because you can't take it from him. No one can take it from him. He's infinite God. And that he would give up his life is a command. It's a direct order. Now, how do I order somebody who is omnipotent? But it's an order. It's given to Christ by the Father. That he is to lay down his life. That's the command. And he's to take it up again. So it is not just laying his life down, but he's commanded also to raise himself up. So he's given a command by the Father. So we have the Father giving him a command to lay down his life because no one can take it and to lift it up again because no one but God can lift him back up again. How heavy is he, I ask all the time. How much does infinity weigh? How big a crane do you need? And hopefully you're starting to recognize the pattern that I hope is emerging. I'm trying to make it emerge. The Father gives to the Son, and the Son gives to the Father. They exchange. It's what they do. And the Holy Spirit is involved as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. That's the first fruits lecture. What is the last thing that he does on the feast day of first fruits? He gives the messianic kingdom to the Father. So the Son, the Messiah, the second person of the triune Godhood, gives the kingdom, the messianic kingdom, to the Father. So I have this giving, this exchanging. They give back and forth all the time. The final act of the feast day of first fruits, the Son gives, delivers the kingdom to the Father, the Messianic kingdom. It's important to know which one it was. And the Father gives all judgment to the Son. John 5.22. How much judgment is all? That's a lot of judgment. That demands that the Son possess omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, and omnibenevolence, and therefore infinity. In order to give him all judgment, as we talked about previously, Christ is the one that writes the names in the book of life. And he writes all sins of all people in the other books as evidence. A little more information. The Father unveiled the Son also himself. So not only is Christ unveiling himself, but the Father unveiled the Son. Do you remember where? This sounds like a Bible test today. I'll keep giving you the answers. He did it at the, at the Jordan River, at his immersion. He wanted to be immersed or submerged, if you will, under the waters of the Jordan River. And the Father unveils who this is. He says, this is the second person of the triune Godhead. That's what he says out loud. And the Holy Spirit descended on him. And so the Holy Spirit also unveils and identifies that this is the second person of the triune God. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. And Christ chose the exact location in the Jordan River where Elisha threw in the branch and floated the precious lost Axe head back to the surface. A man had lost his axe, lost his axe head, but it wasn't his axe head because he couldn't afford the axe head, so he had to borrow it. So he borrowed something and he lost it in the Jordan River, and 
Elijah threw in a branch. Christ is identified as the branch. We'll get to that when we get to Zechariah. And that branch floats this precious lost thing back to the surface of the Jordan River. That is the exact spot where Christ himself chose to be immersed by John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, well, I can't baptize you because you have no sin. Well, it wasn't about sin. It was about that spot. 2 Kings 6. It's not a coincidence that Christ identifies himself as the branch that floats up the lost precious things from the river of death. The axe head connects to the ark because the ark was placed in that exact location too. So I have the axe head and the ark and Christ all in the same spot in the Jordan River. Again, not happenstance. Also not Diet Coke. My scheme to make advertising revenue from Coca-Cola has failed. Somehow it's their fault. I haven't figured out how I'm going to format, format that yet, but I'm still working on it. This river... This Jordan River it's two words Jordan it carries with it uh, Joshua 3.16 Joshua 3.16 1 Timothy 3.16 I wish they got a lot more publication because they're incredible. There's a lot of really interesting 316s out there. Joshua 316 identifies the Jordan River as originating at the city of Adam. So it starts with Adam and it descends into death and judgment at the Dead Sea from which nothing escapes except by heat. So you have this picture of the Jordan River being physical death as well as eternal death. Romans 5.12 So it, it comes from Adam, originates at Adam. Romans 5.12 Let me say that again for the digital people. And terminates into the death sea. The sea of death. Joshua 3.16 and Joshua 4.10 So, let's go over it a little bit. We have Matthew 3:16 and 17. That's the baptism of Christ, uh, not baptism, the immersion, the submerging. I have Second Kings. That's the six. That's the axe head. I've got Joshua 3:16 and 4:10. That's the picture of the Jordan River coming from Adam. I have Romans 5:12, which tells you all death comes from Adam, and I have Revelation 1:1. There we go. So we get back to all of that. The point is. Yeah. This is the audience participation round right here, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. We may need to be louder next time, but some of you did really good. I, some of you did not participate with the effervescence that we were appreciative, hopeful for, and you will have a smaller portion at the buffet because of it. it's a very small cake, and your participation is... Uh, Related to your portion. Jesus Christ 
Here's the point. God the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, there are three distinct persons. It's important to know that. There's three distinct persons who are one. Deuteronomy 6.4, Genesis 1.26, Genesis 3.22. There's the us. Three persons, distinct, but yet they are one. They're all they're the same, but they're distinct. It is how he is made. No one would write this. No human being would ever write that God is three distinct persons, but sameness or equivalency. They're three persons who are intrinsic. They're interwoven. It's the Elohim, the us. So one is Elohim is the us, the YHVH, the the ineffable name, the unpronounceable, the name that is not to be spoken. So those are two of the names of the triune Godhead. So anyway, they, at this specific time, Revelation 1.1, the triune Godhead says, this is the specific time for the second person to unveil himself. And we're going to give him that assignment, if you will. His assi- he had an assignment to lay down his life and raise himself up. Now he has one to unveil himself as the ark is a type of this unveiling. And he's going to unveil himself as the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, which means he's the judge of all things, which is what God said. You're going to be the judge. You're going to be the Ancient of Days of Daniel 7. And he is. So he's going to reveal that. He is the Ancient of Days. And that's why he looks the way he looks in Revelation 1. Because that's exactly how the Ancient of Days looks. So you find this picture of him in Revelation 1, where he's got all of this light and the garments and the brazen feet and the, and the tremendous blinding flame and fire and light. That's Daniel 7, Daniel 10. So he's unveiling himself in the next few passages because that's what he says he's going to do in 1-1. He is the creator of life. He is the light of life, John 8, 12, Genesis 1, 3. He's the judge of all things. He also did this at Matthew 17. So you saw him do it at the immersion, but you also see him do it at Matthew 17. Now, at 1, 1 of Revelation, he's moving it to the extreme, if you will, to where it's not possible to not know who he really is, which is why I gave out pictures of him, because we have pictures of him. Did you give your picture to them, your children? Okay. Just wanted to make sure that you're being a good father. Okay. I made both of your kids laugh at the same time. Is there any issue? And your wife. Is there any problem with this? DFYS? Does that ring a bell? Do we have any problem? Never mind. That picture that we handed out, um, Pat Marvell Smith, is very close. He did an excellent job of depicting what Christ really looks like, and it looks like nothing you've seen in any church ever. But you can read a description of him. That is what he's doing now. He is doing 1-1 over here between 1-12 and 1-17. That's, again, Daniel 7, Daniel 10. And to repeat, at Matthew 17, he showed Peter... James and John. He opened himself up so they could see that he is 1-1 uh, 
12 through 17. So it's the decision of the three who are one, but individuals who are the same and one, to assign to the second person the further unveiling of himself. And not only is he unveiling himself, but he's also unveiling the 70th week of Daniel simultaneously, which is the tribulational seven years. Sixty-nine weeks have come, the 70th week has not yet come, and he unveils the 70th week as well as himself. That's the time of Israel's trouble, or Jacob's trouble. Jacob and Israel are the same. That's the nation of Israel. So Jesus Christ then would be the one who is to give the blessed prophecy. He says it's a blessed prophecy. Uh, and that, of course, comports with Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses identifies the Messiah as being a prophet like unto me. He says, if you want to know who God is, he will come as a prophet that is very much like me. In other words, Moses said, I will be, he will take my life and mix it with him. So you will then be able to identify him, that is Deuteronomy 18.15, calls him the prophet like unto me. The prophet, the only prophet, that would be shown in type again by Moses, and Moses will come up later in the lecture, time permitting. Christ, therefore, has three offices that he's going to fulfill. The first one is the prophet like unto Moses. So look at Moses, figure out who is the one that looks, that, that has taken Moses' attributes and incorporated him. He will be the high priest of God because that is his intercessionary role which is what he's doing now and then he will come as king which is Revelation 1 12 through 17 that description where he's now judge king and therefore it has been given to him to relay to deliver the prophecy well that would make perfect sense because he's in his first office at the time of this which is what it's not that hard test question prophet prophet Priest, king. The prophet prophesies about the prophet. That's what Revelation 1.1 is saying. And there's nothing in Revelation 1.1 that speaks of subordination or origination. In other words, the, if you don't understand what's happening here, you might come to the conclusion. I see it all the time in Hebrews 6. They make the same mistake. They don't see the high priest context. People have, have done everything possibly wrong with respect to the person of Christ, even though he just buries us in information about who he really is. All you, all you actually need is to read 1, 12 through 17. That's all you have to read. Anything that doesn't, any view that you have that does not align itself with those verses, cast it aside as nonsense, because I guarantee you it will be nonsense. So again, there's nothing in Revelation 1-1 that speaks of subordination or origination. How can the Father originate a thought from the Son? They are the same but distinct persons. Is human mind fathom the triunity of God? No. We'll never be able to figure out. This is God we're talking about. He'll explain it to us and we'll still have dumb looks on our faces. Okay. 
It is the triune Godhead being displayed at one one, at work, if you wish to think of it that way. The question becomes, why is it that they're doing it the way they're doing it? They have very good reasons. I've only given you a few. There's many more. Why is it that the Son is the one that would give up or lay down his life? Why not the Holy Spirit? Why is it the Son that added humanity? Why not the Father added humanity? As you know, the Jews don't word it this way. It's us Gentiles that uh, tried to make it silly. And that leads to the second issue, the Hebrew-Greek issue, which is, oh my goodness, what am I going to say about what the Hebrew-Greek is? This is like going to seminary now. And everybody that comes out of seminary comes out bleeding from the eyes and the ear. It's important to know, first off, when we're talking about God in Revelation 1.1, the word God, is that many Jews did not speak Hebrew at the time of Christ. You really see that at, at the feast day of Pentecost in Acts, or Shav- at the Shavuot. They didn't speak Hebrew. When I say the time of Christ, what did I just do? I made a time reference. And Christ is infinite and he's outside of time. So is there really a time of Christ? No, only idiots say things like that. (laughs) But if you know you're an idiot, then you get to be an idiot. Does that make sense? That's a license, yeah. (laughs) I'll get lots of mail saying, you finally confirmed what we always knew. Anyway, the time of Christ veiling and the time of Christ unveiling. So we've had the time of his veiling, even though he's unveiling during his veiling. Does that make sense to anybody? Boy, that's fantastic. No one said yes. But let me say it again. At the time of his veiling, he unveils during his veiling. A little bit. Matthew 17. Matthew 3. There's a little bit of unveiling. He doesn't do the unveiling so much. Matthew 3, the Father and the Holy Spirit do. Now, however, is the time of his unveiling. So this is a post-crucifixion, if you will, post-resurrection of Christ. The time of... He has... He has laid down his life and lifted it up again. And now we're entering the time of unveiling. As opposed to veiling. So I have the entirety of his veiling would be that when he is unseen, he was unknown by Israel. They didn't know who he was. The church doesn't even know who he is. And we have the book. So he's unseen, he's unknown, as opposed to when every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that he is God, Romans 14, 11, and Isaiah 45, 23, and Philippians 2, 10 through 11. There's going to come a time when everybody knows who he is. Every single being, living being, will know who he is. Every eye is going to see him at the conclusion of this blessed prophecy. Which means the blind people are going to see him. He's going to make sure that everyone sees him. The conclusion of the prophecy is the seven years of, of, of the time of Israel's trouble. 
Revelation 19, he returns. He's the coming of the king. So, again, we have the veiling contraposition with the unveiling. Know that there's two of those. There are two. Why? More coincidence. Anyway, Jews were known to speak Greek. So that gives us a real advantage. I want to figure out what word this is in the Hebrew. I can't find out what word in Greek the Jews thought it was. Does that make sense? I'm saying that a lot today, which means it probably never makes sense. In other words, I have Jewish people who speak Greek. They would make, they would write something about God in Greek. I would know that that reflects something that a Hebrew would understand. So it gives us an advantage to figure it out. So I can, I can discern or infer what Old Testament name of God is being referenced by studying the Jewish Greek writings. And it's of great value to know that Jesus Christ himself, God Almighty, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, Jesus God, refers, refers back to Revelation 1-1 himself. So hey, that might be really handy. Let's see what he says. It's in 22-6 of Revelation. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel. The Lord God sent his angel. So who is that angel? That is the angel of God, the angel of the Lord. So now that's solved. Oh, there we go. That's solved over here. When he said he sent and signified it by his angel. Well, I have it clear now. God said, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must quickly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book, who understands it. You want to be blessed by God, understand what he wrote and what he said. Revelation 1.1 through Revelation 22.21. But he tells you that uh, it's the angel of God. Well, that's really helpful because we know who that is. So here we go this way. Let me write this on for you so that I... In 22.6, next week we'll be back into neurological cardiology for those of you who are wondering why I'm not talking about the heart today. The heart's amazing. I can't wait to get back to it. But for today, we're going to do this. The word in the Greek kurios theos. You might think it's pronounced differently, but it's pronounced kurios theos. It means Lord God. So that is the name in one one. Lord God traces back to YHVH. That is the Yod, the Hay, the Va, and the Hay. Whoops. Some would say He. Or what's called the four, the four letters, the Tetragrammaton. And that is the not to be uttered name of God. The Jews would not say His name. Many reasons for that. Don't have time today to go through them all. But it's the unspoken name of God, the YHVH. And the first place in Scripture where we have God using that name is Exodus 3.14. That is the I am that I am. 
he says, my name is the I am that I am. That means that he is the pre-existent one. Which is why Christ always says that he is the I am, John 8.24 and 8.58. He says, you have to believe that I am the I am of Genesis, I'm sorry, of Exodus 3.14 in order to be saved. If you do not believe that he is the I am, you will perish. That's what he says. Look it up, John 8.24. And the I am, again, is a time reference. It means pre-existence. It's a time reference. It actually is not a time reference because it's pre-existence. Does that make any sense? In other words, there is no time for God. There's time for his creation, not for him. So he pre-exists time. And at Genesis 3.4 and Genesis 3.22, he uses Elohim. I'm sorry, did I say Genesis? Yes, I did. Genesis 3.22, he uses Elohim. In Exodus 3.4, he uses Elohim. That's the plural. That's the us. So I have YHVH. I have Elohim. The us. The em is plural. Oh, what's that sound? Yeah, very old man now. And the Elohim, this is the pre-existent one. This is the creator. The us are the creator. The creator of all things. So both of those are at Exodus 3. And at Revelation 1.1, God is curios theos. The YHVH, the pre-existent one, which would make sense because this is a prophecy, wouldn't it? Prophecy illustrates or demonstrates pre-existence. So, Revelation 1.1 is YHVH pre-existence outside of time. And again, there is disagreement as to whether his angel is the angel. Because the Hebrews say the Lord God, the angel of the Lord God, and the spirit of the Lord God, where we say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the Elohim. Jesus Christ is the angel. The angel is God himself. Exodus 11.4, 12.12, 12.29, Exodus 3.2, Acts 7.30-39, Revelation 1.1, and Zechariah 3. Now, I don't expect anybody to remember that, but people on the Internet can play it back. So what do I have in Exodus 3? I have Exodus 3, 2, that's the angel identified as God. Exodus 3, 4, that's God identified as the creator, Elohim. And Exodus 3, 14, as the YHVH. I've got 12 verses where he uses all three of these things. And believe it or not, that answered all those questions, all seven that I rattled off in the beginning, all those issues. Yay me. We should sing the All Hail the Great Pastor song. Let's do it in 9-8 time. Uh, key of B flat. Too easy, yeah. <laughs> Says the percussionist. And I realize it may not be obvious that I did, in fact, answer all seven, but I think that I did, which is all that matters. Delusions notwithstanding. Okay, now comes fun, as I define fun. I got a letter. It's a really long letter. It says this. Hi, Pastor Chronister. Um, it's from Joe Valjo.
Joe Valjo. Hi, Pastor Chronister. My friend and I are busy tackling Jude 9. Quick question. <laughs> How quickly does the soul leave the body upon death? Well, guess where we're back to, huh? I'm going to read my concise answer. Here's your question. Here's my concise answer. Hi, Joe Valjo. Not necessarily in that order. Apparently, her husband's name Joe. Her name is Valjo. And I assembled them into one word. Sorry for the delay in responding. Winter is upon us. Me, Lori, here in Alaska, we have two windows remaining to install, and my capacity vitality is diminished and shows no signs of imminent recovery. Sob. Anyway, a while back. What's that? Time reference. How about that? Ventured uh, A while back, I ventured into the continuity of germ cell plasm. August Wiseman, Gregor Mendel. That's fantastic. Uh, Arthur C. Custance. In contrast, uh, let me go back. I ventured into the continuity of germ cell plasm. Germ cells in contrast with somatic cells are reproductive cells and body cells. And the profound implications of this in Romans 5, 12 through 15. Essentially, I'm discussing somatic death. The body of dust returning to dust. Death through one mad man, Adam. Obviously, there is a relationship between the departure of the integral spirit of the breath of life and somatic death. The body disintegrates without the soul and all that the soul encompasses and contains. This arises the totality of the soul question. Um, and... No. And can or does the soul depart in stages or segmental aspects? We know that angels come to carry us, us being the definitive word. You are not defined as the body. You are the soul, the breath of life. And the angels come to carry your personhood or your essence. So let me repeat that. We know that angels come to carry us. Us being the definitive word, our essence, our personhood, is carried by angels, Luke 16:22. And as you have noted, Jude 9 demonstrates the angelic interest in Moses' body. The key issue has always been the reasonings of Satan as to the body of Moses, who died without any failure or decline. Moses had no failure, no decline, no diminishing, but he died at the command of God. And Satan came for his body. So the key issue has always been the reasonings of Satan as to the body of Moses, who died without any failure or decline, and the defense against Satan by Michael. Here's the question that I asked uh, Valjo Val. Did that wrong. Joe Valjo. I like Valjo Val. Sounds more exotic. I have the power to change it. She can't stop me. She's in California. Why would you be in California? How many angels slash demons were there at this event? When Satan came for the body, did you assume in Jude 9 that he came by himself? Why did he come for the body? I asked millions. Did he have millions of demons with him? How many angels, demons were there at this event? Hopefully I have provided enough information to guide you to the pertinent questions. And if not, I plan to include your letter this Sunday, S.A. Chronister. This is a perfect example why I get so many letters 
because my responses are so finely tuned. Some might say to the point, no one ever says that. But I did answer her question. Again, I think I did, and that's all that matters. So Val Joval wonderfully reached out and returned us to Genesis 2-7, which is the heart and the electric system of the heart and the silver cord and all of these wonderful things. Genesis 2-7, Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7. The loosing of the silver cord, that's the soul. She brought us to this, back to this. And, and the fact that the soul returns to God who gave it while the body disintegrates. The body will return to dust from whence it came at physical death. And there's this wonderful order there. I got a little bit of time, so I'm going to take it. Never say I don't go longer than I'm supposed to. No one ever says that. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. So what did he do first? What's the order? It says so. He formed the body of man. Then what did he do? And breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life. And man became a living being at that time. So what's implied? First he made the body, then he breathed in the breath of life, and man at that point, after that combination, that combining, became a living being. He wasn't a living being. The body is not a living being. It's a vehicle whose sole function is to manifest the living being. And there's that incredible, magnificent order The germ cells, the somatic cells, the body was formed first. Then the breath of life was given. Given. It's a gift. Given. God gives. He gives all the time. He gives inside himself. Gives outside of himself. If you get a present from God at Christmas, it's going to be the best one. It won't be three G.I. Joes in a row. I don't care how young you were. It's only funny once. The body was made and then the breath of life is given. A ridiculously obvious question. Perhaps the most obvious of all obvious questions. Why was the breath of life given? It's important to know the answer to that. Why didn't he sell the breath of life? Here's, uh, I, I got the breath of life. It's for sale today. Half off. It's free. Why? This goes to why does God give life? Create life. Now, he defines life at 2-7 as the combining of the unseen and the seen. So that's the definition of life there. And those are two different questions. Why does why was the breath of life given and why does God give life? Those are two different questions. They're part one of why was the best breath of life given question. So there's two parts to the breath of life being given. Part two, why wasn't the breath of life also made from dust? That's another duh question. Maybe the greatest duh question of all time. The answer to that is because the breath of the spirit of life cannot be made. It's unmade and it cannot be made. That's why it has to be given. Bodies are made. Life is unmakeable. 
Now consider now, somebody's going to attack me for this. Just hang on, listen to one more page before you write me. Consider the implications of Genesis 2-7 now with the aspect of physical death. God gives life because that which is uh, is life is the unseen. He gives that the essential component that brings completion, completeness to the body. So that's what Genesis 2-7 is saying. You do not have completeness. You do not, you're not a living being until you have both parts. And one part comes first and the other part comes second. The second part is the animation force, if you will. It, it cannot be made from particles. It's not particle based. You can't make it from minerals or dust. And I'm intentionally being confusing because there's life and there's life. And it's important to know the difference between life one and life two. God created life two by uniting the breath of life with the body from dust. The breath of life is life one, that which returns to him who give it, who gave it. I hope that came through. It might not, I don't have time. Life one, let me keep saying I do. Life one is the unseen. That which causes the body from dust to demonstrate that consciousness is inside of it. And this is Val Joval's question. The mystery of Moses' body. Because Moses died at the command of God. I really don't have time to get to it. It is fantastically interesting. But it's four pages. And you should look at yourselves. That's Deuteronomy 34. It's the mystery of Moses' body. Deuteronomy 34, Jude 9. It's Zechariah 3, 1 through 10. It's Matthew 17, for those of you who want to read ahead. Deuteronomy 34, 4 tells us that God caused Moses to see all of the land of Israel. Now, you have to go to Ezekiel to find out how much land Israel really has and what they're going to be given in the Messianic kingdom. It's far greater. It's more, far more extensive than what they currently occupy. But Moses would not cross over to the land. And he would not cross over to the land because he struck the stone twice or he killed the stone twice. He did that on purpose because he knew Israel was going to kill him. And he thought he wanted to be out of this rotten job of leading Israel. So he decided he'll commit uh, um, uh, an act by which he will be thrown out. And God would allow him to be thrown out. But God did not. cause him humble. And Deuteronomy 34, 7 adds that Moses' body, so he, he could see, but he wouldn't cross over the land. And Deuteronomy 34, 7 said that Moses' body had not weakened at all. He's 120 years old. No signs of deterioration. None. I have signs pouring all over this stage. He had none. His eyes were not dim. His natural vigor diminished, nor was his natural vigor diminished. Moses did not die as men die. The next time we see Moses in the Bible is where? Just happens to be where? At an unveiling. Matthew 17. Elisha also did not die as men die. Elisha was similar to Enoch. He's taken into heaven. When's, when do we see Elisha? Oh, that's right. At an unveiling. Matthew 17. Moses was buried by God. Why did God bury Moses? Well, we had an answer in Jude 9. Satan came for him. 
came for the body that was not diminished, but yet somehow died. No one knows where Moses was buried, ultimately, Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6. Obviously, Moses, Elijah, and Enoch share this rare experience as it applies to death. And some theological experts, if such a designation exists, assign the Apostle John to this group too. And Aaron. That's based on John 21, 20 through 23, and Deuteronomy 32, 50, and Numbers 33, 38 through 39. Aaron also died at the command of YHVH. Is that good news? That's fantastic news. You can't get a better death. And as an added benefit, Val Joval has discovered the separation of the breath of life from the somatic body of death, a body of dust, is in the midst of this subject. Moses' body was not on the brink of death. The statement of Deuteronomy 34, 7 are definitive. He had to die at the command of God. He was not going to die unless that occurred. Same probably was true, if not absolutely true, absolutely, absolutely true of Aaron. God commanded the death of Moses and then hid Moses' body. Yet in Matthew 17, we see Moses again. We also see him in Revelation 11, if I'm correct. Of course I'm correct. Why did God hide the body of Moses? Who's he hiding it from? Hiding it from mankind and he's hiding it from Satan. Why is he doing that? Is he going to hide my body? No, I'll be carried around like some dumb movie. That's funny to the one person who saw that movie. Obviously, prior to God hiding, concealing Moses' body, Satan, and I think logically he's, he's accompanied by a very large contingent. Who's he going up against? Michael, the archangel. And Michael had been given the assignment to safeguard the body of Moses, and Satan came for the body of Moses, and he would not have done it without a substantial military contingency. Nor would Michael confront Satan alone. And it makes it clear that he would not. And what he says about Satan, he refuses to rebuke him. That's Zechariah 3, by the way. You compare Zechariah 3 with Jude 9, you get a lot of answers that we won't answer today. So I have Zechariah 3, 1 through 10, and Jude 9, 10, and 11. So without controversy, Zechariah 3, 1 through 10, and Jude 9, 10, and 11 are right like this. And now here comes the obvious question. Why did Satan want this body that, could, that would not have died except on command? Had Moses' body gone to putrefaction, as all bodies do, what do you think? Except for Enoch and Elijah and Aaron and John and Moses? Because they seem to be different. Would Satan attempt to seize Moses' body if it had putrefied? What do you think? In other words, had Satan attempted this with Aaron? And if not, why not? Would Satan dig up a body that had begun to disintegrate into dust and return to dust? Back to Genesis 2-7. Phrase it another way. 
What was the condition of Moses' body? Why would the anointed cherub that is Satan, though fallen, who's filled with wisdom, he's the king of the fallen, why would he attempt to take this body? What's his plan? And remember, we began in Genesis 2-7, the body is made first, then the life one then life one is placed inside of it, breathed inside. This is true only for Adam and Eve. For the rest of us, we have what's called a traducianism process, transmission through a natural order. So this is a very easy question, isn't it? For those of you who remain awake. Let me look. It's not, not a big number. <laughs> so next week... We'll get into the body of Moses because this is uh, Max Planck. This is quantum physics, whether consciousness is required to collapse superposition. That's what we're talking about, ultimately, from a modern perspective. Or if you want to think of it this way, can a computer-generated measurement, which is an observation, can a computer-generated observation collapse a superposed state? Some people think it can. I don't think it can. Max Planck didn't think it could either. You'll say it sounds a lot like Schrodinger's cat again, and you'd be right. But it fits in with Jude 9, of which we will discuss next week, all three of us.